The Second Act podcast is brought to you by Chin Whiskers Beard and Hair Care. Chin Whiskers is an affordable, Canadian-made, 100% natural men's grooming line. It's available at your local Tommy Guns Original Barbershop, Amazon, or at chinwhiskers.ca. Welcome to the Second Act podcast. Welcome back to the Second Act Podcast. Today we are very thankful to be joined by a gentleman named Greg German. He is uh, a f- guy I've known for a few years. I've worked with him uh, in, in a couple of capacities in, in my career. And, uh, you know, Greg is a, is a super intelligent guy. The first thing you'll notice about him uh, when you meet him is, is how smart and uh, well-spoken he is, how how he comes across... Um, all the time, at all times, in, in complete and total control. So you can imagine my surprise when I actually got to know him a little bit uh, a couple of years in, that he started telling me a, a, a just a crazy story uh, about how he'd got to that point in his life. His He, he had some of the highest highs um, and, and some of the most crushing lows to uh to that point in his life and and he was only in his early 30s he he uh i believe he says in the in the interview had a net worth of five and a half million dollars at the age of 21 while he was going to university and training to be on the canadian bobsled team you know just an amazing uh skill set and an amazing ability to accomplish work and, you know, he, he gets himself into a situation where he has to really rely on his his morals to guide him. And uh, at that particular moment, his his morals and his, his uh, ethics let him down. And he ended up spending upwards of six years in, in uh, federal prison in the United States uh, before coming back to Canada and finishing off his sentence. And he talks about what led to that and and the things that he gleaned from it and and then he talks about what he's doing now which is he's put himself into a position as a life coach and a, and a registered hypnotherapist to to help people recognize and deal with some of the issues that led him to to have to you know fall to to earth in such a crushing fashion for lack of a better term he's uh he's really well spoken um he's really uh articulate he he knows the words that's on the tip of his tongue instead of stumbling over him he delivers them every time it's a long one um but there's a lot to go over here and i believe that uh greg you know he he had the opportunity here to really give you the context about about why he is the way he is and and then he had the opportunity to open up and talk about about why and it's just a, an incredible hour hour and 15 minutes and and i'm so glad that you guys are are along for the ride on this one so uh without any further ado please welcome to the second act podcast greg german yeah thanks for having me on gord so i'm a i'm a clinical hypnotherapist and i'm a duly certified health and life coach and so i I have i have two branches to what i do one is you know working with individuals so i do individual therapeutic journeys, purpose journeys. And I, and I have a clinic where I see people for clinical hypnotherapy. And as well, I have uh, a company called Corpora. And through Corpora, I work with organizations to help them 
create a really, really purpose-driven, intentional brand. And then we create a culture that drives and supports that brand. And then, and then we deliver bespoke programming to help those employers use their, their workplace as a vehicle for the, the personal and professional development and growth of their people. And, uh, and, and, you know, by the time we leave, it's a, it's a very well-oiled, uh, a beautiful aligned machine that people are really proud and, and excited to be a part of. So that's what I'm doing right now, Gord. And, uh, and uh, the brand that I'm driving right now, this brand that I've created is very much a, a function of what's happened to me in my life. I think that's true for so many. Huh. So, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll jump into that, you know, um, yeah, I think that's like what what you're talking about. Um, I, I think a lot of people kind of subconsciously would would be really, you know, um, th- there'd be a lot of value in it, whether they they understand kind of the val- the brand and and that uh, you know we we've talked before about the you know the the perceptions of scarcity and abundance, and I think that's something that people uh, you know don't understand until they need to understand it. So so I'm anxious to talk about that a little later on, but. Um, you know, we, to, to understand kind of how you got there, I think the, 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 the first part of your story is, is really important to lay that context. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, Gord, my story, I guess it really begins when I was a young kid, you know, I was, uh, I guess a bit of a high achiever. I don't really like that term, you know, um, but you know, I was good in school, good in sports and, and. I noticed that I got love, I got I got attention, I, I felt accepted when I when I excelled at things, when I did really well. And uh, you know, just like all kids, you want to you want to feel safe, you want to feel wanted, and that was my way to do that. And so, I really became an achiever. You know, it became a big piece of who I was and how I related to the world. And of course, I I wouldn't have been able to articulate this as a kid, right? But no. But uh, you know, I was that kid who kind of had to be the best at something and I would try really hard to be the best at something and and if I was only the second best you know I, it wasn't enough that was the way I was living my life yeah so that you know I mean that that can drive someone to excel so I I did well in school and I went on to university I went to the U of A and I I did pharmacology which is in the, the faculty of medicine there at the U of A and and I was burning the candle at both ends you know all my life you know I was drinking you know five six red bulls a day some days and you know i was actually telling the story to someone uh, about three months ago and i remembered something that i had forgotten and it's that i used to i used to sleep only six times a week so i would stay awake for like 23 hours and then sleep six hours and by the end of a a week i'd eliminated a, a whole night of sleep and it was like my little secret like i didn't want to tell people this this was my, my little productivity secret and i couldn't believe that you know i had figured out a way to squeeze six hours of productivity out of my week and you, and you forgot that you lived your life for a period of time like this? Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Things come back to me all the time, you know, because this story, like what I'm telling you now, took place over 15 years, right? So right, yeah. all the little things that you remember, you know, they make me chuckle now. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was going as hard as I could. I was I was president of the faculty at the U of A for, for two years, and I was uh, a varsity sprinter at the U of A, uh, and I was then recruited by Team Canada Bobsleigh, so I did... I did bobsleigh for Canada in uh, 2009, 2010, and uh, started started several businesses. Um, you know, was executive of my fraternity, just like go, 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 go. Was, you know, yeah. Felt like 
I felt like I just always needed more, right? Like th this ideology that I that I invested in as a young kid that happiness and acceptance and and meaning comes from achieving and having and taking and getting, you know, that 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 paradigm was where I was living my life. And as I went through my degree, Gord, I was achieving more and more and more, you know, academically and extracurricular stuff. And then financially, as these businesses that I started really took off. Um, and, and yet, interestingly, I was feeling more and more empty, you know, more and more hollow. And, and uh, were you recognizing that at the time? Like, or was this something that you, you're only kind of noticing as you look back on that time in your life? Yeah, I, I think that it was always there right in front of my face, but I think I was actively trying to believe that all these things that I'd invested so much into, including my identity, were, yeah. were the right way. You know, like if you had asked me if I was happy back then, I would have said, well, of course I'm happy. Look at look at my 8,000 Facebook friends and look at all my shiny stuff. And, you know, I, I you know, my social life was, was very vibrant and, and uh, I had a lot going on, right? Well, and, and at that point in lots of lives, those are the measures, right? Like that's what you looked for at that point, especially this would have been in the advent of Facebook. So to be on the leading edge of that, you know, I, I haven't been on Facebook in, in 12 or 13 years, but, but I remember that seeing people that were just friends with, yeah, 2,500 people. And you're like, man, how can you even be friends with 2,500 people? Yeah. So. yeah, for sure. And, uh, and, you know, when I, also when I look back on it now, I, I realize how lonely I was because, you know, towards the end of my degree, Gord, I was starting to acknowledge that, geez, I don't think, you know, another hundred thousand dollars, or I don't think another presidency or, you know, another world cup medal is going to get me what I think it's going to get me like that, this, this illusion that I was going to feel better. I was going to feel whole by getting more was starting to get cracked up, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I, I started feeling like there, maybe there has to be more to life, but I felt really lonely because I couldn't tell my friends. Like I, if I would have told my friends, Hey, I kind of hate my life. You know, they would have looked at me like I was an alien, right? Like what the hell's, what the hell are you talking about? You know, how could, how could you possibly, you're what yeah. we're striving for, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So by the end of my degree, Gord, I was, I was really a shell, you know, like nothing really meant anything to me anymore. My relationships in my life, everything was just kind of sterile. I had designed my life to be this, this train of achievement. And so, like, I woke up in the morning and, and it was just like, go, go, go. And that was just how I designed my life. And it was just natural. And I woke up in the morning and make money, do stuff, get it done, bang, bang, bang. And, and uh, I was starting to feel like I was on this monorail out into the abyss. You know, like I, I wasn't happy. I had achieved more than people my age. Yeah. I knew. And, and I was on this treadmill going nowhere, like sprinting, but going nowhere. And I, did, I knew I couldn't really run any faster. And I was starting to wonder what the hell, like, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm just not capable of happiness, you know, and, there, and, and you resist that. You resist that hard. You, 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 now you're putting all your eggs in that next thing. Like, okay, this next thing, this yeah. is going to finally make me happy, right? And it's like, you start really swinging for the fence. So I should backtrack, actually, Gord, at the beginning of my degree, I get introduced to these guys at a, at a birthday party at Joey's in, in South Common in Edmonton. And these guys were about our age, like 18, 19, and their families were, were wealthy and they owned several businesses in Edmonton and Calgary. And so these guys were starting to step into some leadership roles at these companies. And they were also 
getting into some nefarious business, right? They were, they were buying drugs like narcotics from Mexico and the Southern US and then bringing them up into Canada and then wholesale selling them off. And so these guys found out I was doing pharmacology uh, and they just straight up asked me like, hey man, they told me what they were doing and they're like, hey, would you test these drugs for us and tell us how pure they are? And uh, I should say that at this point in my life, like I was a straight arrow. I was a, I was yeah. a student athlete, never smoked weed. And, and, you know, if I'm being honest, I was kind of on a soapbox, right? Like people that were out partying and, you know, I just couldn't understand that. I'm like, if you're not doing everything you can to be the best you can be and succeed in this life, then, you know, what's wrong with you? And, you know, so for me, I remember them asking me this and I was just like, holy shit. Like I couldn't even conceive of this, what the hell they're talking yeah. about really. But you know, I remember my toes curled up my shoes, like my butthole pocket. And I was just like, Oh my God. And I, I was like, Oh, you know, it's really not my thing, you know, thanks anyways. And I thought I was going to get shot in the parking lot leaving. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, <laughs> at that point you're exposed, right? You don't know what's yeah. coming next. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, but that didn't happen luckily. And, um, and then over the course of my degree, as I was saying, as I was going through this, this moral de-evolution, um, feeling more and more desperate, more and more empty, more powerless in my life. I'd run into these guys randomly here and there, you know, out in public at parties with common friends. And every time I ran into them, you know, maybe every six, eight months or so, they, they'd offer me more and more and they kept sweetening the deal. And uh, so by the end of my degree, Gord, one of my one of my companies was a little trucking company so i started i bought uh just a single five ton single axle truck and this was in back in 2008 when things really started slowing down and so larger carriers with like big full-size semis with uh you know high overhead costs high driver costs they were running at a half capacity and and having a hard time and so this little truck you know i had a 16 year old kid driving it around town and i was just doing shuttling between distribution centers and stores. So I had some subcontracts with like Costco, Sobeys, Canpar, things like this. And so we, we were just like flat out with this little thing. And then I bought another truck and, then, and, and you know, I, I grew this to have, I had 14 five, five ton trucks um, while I was going to school. While you're and going I, to school for pharmacology, you're running a business that's got 14 sets of wheels on the ground. Yeah. And, and you're a president of a fraternity and you're involved in the faculty and all these other things. This is why you need to eliminate one <laughs> night's sleep, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I was also on, on Team Canada. So I was, I was driving to Calgary twice a week from Edmonton for like training, you know, in the ice house and on the track and then doing like full on full time athlete training schedule as well. So yeah, it was like, you know, I was just, Flat. incredible amount of work yeah 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 so I, I actually expanded a gourd to vancouver and we so we leased a full-size semi now and we were bringing stuff from the ports in vancouver kind of cutting out the middleman and distributing and and then i made a big move down to the u.s so i just you know i call it manifested but by chance ran in, I, I made contacts down there some stuff in textiles gypsum stuff like this and i was able to get things moving in both directions up the western seaboard so i expanded to Port of LA, Port of Long Beach, and I was bringing stuff up and then and then in into you know further east into Canada. And when I made that move, I had to move down to LA for a few months to get out everything set up down there and, and get it all organized. And these guys found out I was moving down, 
and they approached me again they said hey man like this is where we get that stuff and they said if you can test it down there it's worth way more to us because once we get it across the border into canada if we test it and find out that it's bunk you know it, they can't return it i'm guessing right i'm not really sure how all that works yeah but uh so so like i said by this time like i was just in a real weak spot and i didn't realize how how weak i was but you know, Gord, you can talk yourself into anything, right? If you, if your unconscious mind believes that this is what you need for safety, or this is what you need to feel well, then you can, you can romance anything. And that's what I did. You know, I've been watching these guys for four years and there's never any violence, never any gang stuff. Like these guys were suit wearing business people. You'd, you'd be surprised, Gord, you know, yeah. if we get into the story, you'd be surprised who really is into this. People think it's hell's angels and, and all these guys, but it's, you know, the people who really move this stuff, it's not who you think. Um, so also by me saying no all this time, I could see that I wasn't preventing anything. Right. In fact, I told myself, well, Hey, if I, if I agree to do this, maybe I'll be able to keep bad stuff from coming into Canada, you know, and it's like, a, you know, now I'm, now I'm trying to feel like a public servant or something. Right. Yeah, no. And that's, that's an important distinction to make that, um, you know, you can talk yourself in anything when you think you're doing something with some altruistic, uh, tendencies behind it. Um, but ultimately that's, that's how we do these, get ourselves into these things is we, nobody ever wakes up in the morning and says in four years, here's what I'm going to be doing. You just find yourself there. So, so did you also, were you emboldened by four more years of success since the first time they approached you and you, and you just had been having this success and you were like, if I put my mind to it, I can do this. And, and it's not going to, affect xyz other things in my life and so i'm just going to go ahead and, and do this at this point that's a good question yeah to be honest not really i think it was more like uh the bug they put the bug on my ear that first time and that bug just kept whispering for four years you know yeah and uh like they, so i'll just tell you they they offered me eight hundred thousand dollars the amount of money kept going up and by the end here I was going to be down in LA for, for a few months. And I was, they were asking me to test a few little pieces off of many shipments over that period of time. And the total was $800,000 cash. So tax free. Right. And, and to be honest, that sounds like a, like, that sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but honestly, Gord, at that point in my life, that wasn't even that much because these companies, like it, I, I was worth five and a half million dollars when I was 21, you know? So, I, uh, it, it wasn't really about the money, you know? And I mean, this is a really important thing for, for me to communicate. I had become so numb in my life court because I, nothing meant anything to me anymore. And I was just like, go, 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 go. And nothing was ever enough. And I was so depleted and so shallow and so empty that this, this stuff, when I actually started considering doing this, it was so foreign and so exciting and so dangerous that I like, I felt an emotion. You know, and in in this in the strangest, like almost perverse way, this illegal stuff made me feel like a human being. Again, I felt something. You know. So so how like is this a a like you had a realization that you felt something, or had you known for a long time that you you just you weren't you were a shell to use your word, and and you could like look back at a point like high school graduation was exciting to me, and then less and less and less and then I got to this point now or was that the realization that just how empty you'd become you know what I, all this stuff that I'm saying right now is stuff that uh 
I, it, these are, these are perspectives that I gained after the fact, right? Right. Yeah. At the time it, it was just this pull. I felt this pull, this excitement to, to do this that I, I wasn't really understanding, but it was like a, a deep basic human need seeing a way to be met. You know, we, we, we talk about food, water, shelter. These are our basic needs, but we, we, as human beings, we have a need for meaning and for connection. Right. And, and when these aren't met, we, we suffer. And when we suffer. Oh yeah. There's tons of reading you can do out there about empires that have risen and fallen over the years and how important it is for them to have conflict and to fight and maintain uh, their sharpness in order to lead and be, and be powerful. The the opulent empires die quickly because they, they get soft for lack of a better term. Uh, That, that fight is is critical to maintaining the strength of of your power so you're on the ground in la right now is, is when you finally agree to it or no i hadn't been out? to canada yet so these guys oh, okay i can't even remember how they found out that i was going down there but but they did and they approached me and uh and so for all those reasons i i just said yeah i'm gonna do this right so they gave me this encrypted phone and I took it down to LA with me and I just left it plugged into the wall. And I'd been down there for like two months and I was pretty well done everything I had to do and was getting ready to come home. And I was starting to think, well, I don't know what the hell's going on here. Maybe this thing's not going to ring. Maybe nothing's going to happen. Um, and I was acting really ambivalent about it. I'm like, oh, whatever, like no big deal. But the truth is that I really, really wanted this to happen. Like I'd already spent this 800 grand in my head and, uh, you know, in, in addition to all the other ridiculous stuff I was buying, like I was, I was looking at buying a G6 plane. I had, I had $160,000, you know, special edition Range Rover black on order. Um, like, and my garage is just full of silly, silly things, you know, two $10,000 carbon bikes, stuff like this. So I had already spent this in my head and like, yeah, I'm going to buy this house down by the river and all this stuff. And this is, and I'm, and I'm already telling myself, Oh, I'm going to be so happy. I'm this is it. I'm finally going to have made it. Right. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I was getting ready to come home and thinking maybe this isn't going to happen. And then the phone rang. So I went and I met this guy outside of LA and, uh, he had six pieces of cocaine. They were about a gram each. And, and these were, these represented pieces off of much larger shipments, you know, like over a hundred kilos each. And uh, so I, I did some chemical reactions and, you know, weighed precipitates and then I left. And uh, whew, this, this part of the story, like I get goosebumps when I tell this, cause it was, it was, uh, it's just so vivid for me still. Yeah. So I, I left this place and, uh, I'm driving down the 110 freeway in, in Southern California back to my ridiculously expensive downtown LA Wilshire Boulevard apart, you know, apartment that I just had to have for my two months in my BMW 328i that I just had to have. And uh, felt like the there was a black hole crushing my chest. You know, like I could barely drive. You know, I guess it was a panic attack. You know, I wouldn't have known what that really was at the time, but it was like the dam of denial just broke, you know, like I'd been telling myself, you're not really doing this. You're not really into all this, you know, and, and uh, I had kept this so compartmentalized in my life. Nobody knew about this, but 
it just hit me, you know, like, I felt like I just left the scene of a movie. Like, what are you doing in your life, man? Like, what, what are you doing? How, how could you have let your life just take such a, a, a sharp right turn here? And uh, so I, I called the people I knew in Canada and I told them their purity numbers. And I said, hey guys, like, I'm, I'm not into this, it's not for me. And, and by this time, I had enough rapport with them that I knew that'd be fine. You know, they, they weren't worried about yeah. me. So I walked away. So I came back to Canada and uh, yeah, I mean, kind of had my version of a, a come to Jesus moment, you know, like I, I, I felt like there had to be more to life for There has to be more to life than just chase, chase, chase and get stuff. And then, and then what, you know? Yeah. Um, but I didn't have the perspective. I didn't have the context or the, or the tools to really understand that, you know, all my life growing up, it was like, yeah, you, you get a good job, you make lots of money, you buy a nice RV and you get dirt bikes for your kids and coach a few teams and, and uh, you know, that's happiness, right? But executing that just wasn't what I thought it was going to be and, and it left me feeling really lost. So, you know, it's so funny when I think back to this period in my, in my life, I was really trying to figure out what life's all about. And I remember, like, I tried some yoga, I tried, I tried meditation a little bit, but that just took too long. Right. I wanted somebody to give me the five steps to enlightenment and I would just do those faster than all you losers. And now I'm, now I'm so enlightened next what's next. Right. Like that's, I was still trying to power steer everything. I was still trying to achieve, achieve, achieve. And I was making my sense of wellness, my sense of wholeness contingent on the stuff I was doing and how good I, and how fast I was doing it and how much better than you I was doing. Right. <clears throat> so when you're, when you're doing all this, is there, like, is there any pressure outwardly, your parents, your family, like with the, you were high, high performing throughout your life. So they obviously had, you know, uh, an expectation, even if it was unspoken that this is kind of the level Greg's going to perform at. And, and you're kind of exceeding kind of five and a half million bucks at 21. I mean, nobody has, has that as a goal for their child. Um, you're doing all these things. Is it kind of like, are you feeling that, that you just got to keep building on it? Or is this really all, something that's inside of you that you're trying to drive and, and fill. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the latter. It's definitely inside of me. You know, I, as a kid, seeing that my parents were proud and, and happy for me when I was successful or when I did well at things, it, you know, I, I misinternalized that as them needing me or wanting me to be something more than I was, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely felt like I was right. I, I always felt like I was on the cusp of making them proud, but never quite able to get there. Right. Um, yeah. Chasing, right. Always chasing. Yeah. So, so you're not, you're, you're not looking back on this and saying like, these were some misplaced, uh, like you're, you're, this is you, like, this is all stuff that you've put on yourself and, and holes you're trying to fill within yourself. And, and you've come to that, you come to terms with that kind of now as an adult, or, or I guess you were an adult then too, but now as a more enlightened adult, you have the tools in your toolbox to understand stuff like this. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Gord, this really informs what, you know, the way I parent my kids, right? Because you can, you can act, you know, if you, if you're giving your kids a lot of love and attention when they're doing things you think they should be doing, you want them to be doing and, and not so much when, when they're not, 
kids kids are smart right kids can pick oh, up yeah. on that and they you know we obviously the way we socialize our kids you know through all these things we're talking about it it affects the way they relate to themselves and the world and and uh you know my parents they they hold a lot of responsibility for this like they they tortured themselves like what could we have done what could we have said what could we have done differently and i keep telling them nothing you guys are fantastic you know this you know this was my journey and uh this was, you know, this, this is what happens when, when you mishandle opportunities and you mishandle your gifts and you lose your way. Right. right. So, <clears throat> yeah. So I, you know, I'm back in Canada now and I'm, I'm really trying to commit. I'm really trying to cleanse my soul. Right. So I'm trying to commit to being a good, doing good. I'm, I'm back in school, driving these businesses hard. Um, and I totally cut ties with these guys, right? Like I didn't accept any money. I just felt kind of gross about the whole thing. So I, I didn't accept any cash. And uh, eight months later, I had a trip planned back to the U.S. to glad hand some of the bigger clients. And, and actually, some of the people that I'd met while I was living down in L.A., they were going to Vegas for a, a wedding. And Vegas is only like three-ish hours from, from L.A., so I was, I planned to fly to Vegas and then drive to LA after this wedding. So I get on this plane and um, plane lands in Vegas, right? And I turn my phone on and my phone's just like ding, 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 because I'm, I'm so fucking important, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm face deep in my phone and uh, I start kind of notice in my peripheral vision that all the people that had stood up on the plane, everyone's kind of sitting back down again. And I, I'm wondering what's going on. So I look out my window and I can see that we're not even pulled up to the terminal. Like we're, we're in the middle of the runway or something. I don't even know where we are because I can't even see the airport. And, uh, but I'm thinking nothing, right? So whatever, I don't care. I got lots to do here on my phone. So I'm back in my phone. And, and then four police cars surround the plane with their lights on. And now everyone's going, oh, what the hell, you know? And this was a direct flight from Edmonton. So I actually knew some people on the plane. So I'm making jokes, right? I'm like, oh, who's a terrorist? Ha ha. You know, who's got a bomb? Ha ha ha. You know, I'm, I'm just not even thinking. I'm not thinking anything because this, this stuff that I did happened eight months ago. And I've been, you know, I compartmentalized it so hard and uh, been kind of actively denying it too. Like, you know, that didn't happen. I'm, I'm not a dirtbag, right? Like, yeah, I, yeah. I never did any of that stuff. Nobody knows about it. So it's just like, we're going to leave that in the past ignore it um and like i said eight months i've been grinding now and it's so far in the rearview mirror it feels like it's just not on my mind at all uh so i'm back in my phone you know taking care of business and i feel this shadow kind of come over me in the aisle and i look up and it's this like seven foot tall shaved head guy with a dea vest on he says are you greg german i said yeah and he snatched me up. Um, so this was, I should tell you, this was like, I was in bobsleigh shape. So I was like 245 and lean and my feet did not touch the carpet. He had me by like the shoulders, like kind of up under my like underhooks and carried me off the plane and laid me down on the, on the runway, cuffed me behind my back. And then they put me in the back of this black FBI car that was now parked under the plane. So 
of course I know exactly what this is, right? This is the only illegal thing I've ever done in my life. I've never, never jaywalked. So I'm sitting there in this, in the back of this car going, holy shit. And this FBI agent gets in the back seat beside me and he says, do you know what this is about? And I lie, right? I'm like, no, you know, this is crazy. What the hell is going on here? And he said, shut the fuck up. And he put his Blackberry in front of my face. This is back when we still use Blackberries. And he started scrolling through pictures. So that guy who I had met eight months ago to test that stuff for, he had recently been arrested crossing the border with a false bottom F-150 with 160 kilos of Coke slid into there and he had flipped. <clears throat> and so they didn't arrest me at the time because they're trying to build this case, right? Um, and so I found out later in my discovery that uh, when, I, when I came back to Canada, they had like the van outside my house with two agents in it around the clock for months. My phone, my sister's phone, my parents' phones were all tapped. My bank accounts were monitored. They were following me to and from school, to and from my businesses. Uh, but because I had like truly cut ties with these guys and because I had no money coming in other than legitimate stuff for my businesses, they just let me be, right? Uh, but unfortunately for me, that's not how things work in the U.S. You know, the, the war on drugs and the legal system is a bit of a different machine down there and they, they want their pound of flesh. Right. So they take me to the FBI headquarters in Las Vegas. And uh, yeah, man. So by this point, I'm already like feeling real humbled, having some experiences that I never thought I would have in my life. Like I'm, I'm being walked through the airport uh, with handcuffs on. And they've got my jacket draped over my hands. So you can't really see. And these are like plain clothes operatives. And they're, they got each of me one hand. And so if you're not really looking at me, you wouldn't really notice. But people who see, they're like, oh, something's going on here, right? Um, so already, you know, shit's crumbling for me because I'm so used to like walking and walking so proud and so tall. And anyone who knows me, you know, I'm feeling a vibe from them that makes me feel good, you know? So they take me to the FBI headquarters there. And it's just like you see in the movies board. Like I'm, I'm in this interrogation room with two-way glass and I'm like handcuffed to the table. And because this was a joint investigation between the RCMP in Canada and the DEA and the FBI in the US, because things were going across the border. These agents are like out in the hallway on the phone with RCMP investigators and, and detectives. And then they're coming back in and they're, asking questions like, what do you know about this? You know, do you know this person? Do you know that person? So I had to make some really quick decisions. You know, <clears throat> this is a, this is a major fork in the road, right? Like talk about your second act, you know, yeah. every, everything in my life is either before this or after this and nothing is both, right? Cause this just changed everything. So they come in and first they, they serve me with my indictments. Right. And so, I was charged with five things uh, and they split hairs down there. It's kind of hilarious. So possession with intent to distribute, distribution, conspiracy to export, exportation, and then aiding and abetting. And all five of these carried a mandatory minimum of 10 years to maximum life. And in the federal system in the US, there's no parole. So if you get 10 years, it's 10 years. And if you get life, it's just your life, right? So a life sentence in the federal system means you just never, ever get it. And this, this is all federally uh, jurisdiction, federal jurisdiction due to its uh, cross international nature. 
Yeah. It was also okay. states, right? So, right. Yeah. So this is right in the, in the fed pocket. So they serve me these and now, uh, you know, I'm going, holy shit. This does this can't even be real from those little six grams. Right. Cause I, I had the Canadian legal system on my mind. Like I don't really know the Canadian legal system, but I had it in my head that with all the good stuff I'm doing and all the community service and all the volunteering and all this, that I'm going to Olympic athlete or on the Olympic track even. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm going to get a slap on the wrist. I'm going to get told like, what are you doing? And then, you know, yeah. back to, back to life. Right. So, uh, yeah. Like, so you're thinking about that, but like, what about a lawyer in, in that moment? Like you're, you're successful because you can think on your feet, right? Like that part of your brain isn't deserting you. Even if you are overwhelmed in the, in the other part, what yeah. are you thinking about? Like, are you like, I got to get somebody in here to protect my rights or are you waiting to see what, what they ask and what they what they are doing or, or how how does that work in that moment yeah well if i'm being honest you know i wasn't thinking too far ahead because it was happening real fast right everything was happening yeah. pretty fast uh they they so they served me these indictments and then they said hey look like we're uh they said look we, we had a confidential informant involved before you and after you so we know that this was your only one point of contact we know you didn't accept any money and they said you don't need to go down for this they said Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take away your passport. You go about your trip here in the U.S. And of course, they knew everything about my trip, right? They, their intelligence is extraordinary. And they said, when you're when you're done and you fly back to Canada, there will be a handler somewhere on the plane. You won't know who it is. And then when you land in Edmonton, you'll be assigned an RCMP handler who will be waiting for you at the airport. And you will continue to meet these people that you know and and you know liaise with this handler. And they said, and if you do this, then no one will ever know about this. No charges, no nothing. Hush, hush. And uh, and actually, they, they offered me money too. And then they put the time crunch on you too, because if you your plane lands and then you don't come up for air for 10, 12 hours, and the people that you were meeting there get suspicious, like they're, they're they don't want to blow you up, right? So they want to flip you quick and get you back out. So. So this was it, man. This was, I had to make this decision, right? Do I want to take the way out? You know, and in, in a lot of ways, I felt like I had the world by the dick, right? Like I, I felt like it's going to be all downhill from here because I've been telling myself, yeah, yeah. you like, you know, you don't really feel that happy, but you made it, man. Like you, you got it. So now, you know, life's going to be fine. And, you know, Gord, I, it still amazes me to this day um that i was able to find the grace that i did in that moment because when when you're when you're feeling the way i was feeling which is hollow and empty and feeling like you don't have any power in your life you can't even make yourself feel good you're uh you're extremely protective of your ego and your identity and everything in your life feels really fragile so i would have expected that in a situation like this i would have done anything i would have pushed an old woman down the stairs to keep from having people find out what I had done, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely was not a spiritual person at this time in my life, but it's like, I felt a hand on me, you know, and in those eight months, since I'd come back to Canada, I had started to acknowledge that I didn't have the tools or the perspective or the strength to turn my life around, you know, like I could feel the direction of my life, just pulling me further and further out into the abyss. 
and I knew there was nothing out there for me, you know? And so I decided I just couldn't remember anyone's name. And, uh, that like the, the look on the face of the people, like when you're sitting and talking, does that tell you the gravity of the decision that you made like right then and there where they're the, the, the disappointment that like they thought they had this, the guy, and then he's, he's not. And they're just like, now, you know what you're in for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they knew, I knew, um, they knew I knew people and they knew I knew where stuff was, but, um, you know, they, they were playing the good cop, bad cop. It was like yeah. so classic. It was hilarious. Like the one guy was just long hair, like kind of get you a coffee. Can I, you know, like chill, just like, it's all good. And then his, his partner was just high strung, you know, we're going to get you, we're going to fuck you and all this. Right. And, and so it went from good cop, bad cop to just all bad cops now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Where did all the good cops? Hey, I, I can have a coffee now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the way the system really works down there is that they, they really, you know, you can't really go to trial because you're going to lose. And so when they, when they've got you, like in a situation like mine, this isn't a case of hearsay or whatever. This is like, they got, they got photos and videos of me doing this. So, so I was hit, hit like shit. Right. Yeah. But, uh, so, so now it just becomes like getting a lawyer and trying to do the best I can in court. Right. So they take me to jail and this is a, this is a Thursday evening of a long weekend Friday. So I was going to have to sit in there until Monday to wait for my identity hearing and my arraignment and all this. And I remember thinking, okay, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll spend a million dollars on a lawyer. Like, I don't care. You know, my family's not really going to know anything yet because for me to not call them for three days while I'm on a trip is totally normal. So I'm like, yeah, Monday, I'm getting a lawyer. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to come back to Canada. I'm going to deal with this in the quiet. No one's going to know about this. Right. And, uh, but unfortunately it didn't go that way. So I, yeah. on Sunday afternoon, one of the guards slips this note under my cell door. And this is a cell with two bunks and there's three of us in there. You know, in, I can tell you Vegas jails, like this is probably stories for another time, but Vegas jails are, the, are absolutely the circus you'd expect, right? <laughs> Just like crazy, you know, clown, people dressed up as clowns and trannies and then all kinds of like drunk, hilarious weirdos, you yeah. know? So um, they, they slide the phone on my door and it says, call your parents in Canada. And my heart just like went through the floor. So what had happened is these, these people that I was meeting in Vegas, like obviously I didn't walk down the terminal. Right. So they're wondering what the hell's going on. And they start calling around. They knew I was diabetic. So they start calling out hospitals. Hey, did something happen? Did something go on? And one of the hospitals said, you need to call this jail. So they called and they said, yeah, he's here. So then they got on Facebook and started you know, they were able to find my sister and got a hold of her. And then she talked to my parents. And then, so now I got to make this phone call. Right. So we were on, we were on 23 hour lockdown, which means that you get, you get out for an hour a day and you can either shower or make a phone call or watch a show or like walk in circles in a little pod. And that's, that's it. So door opens and I run over there and uh, get in line at the phones and yeah, man. Wow. What a, what a crazy experience that was. So I call my dad and this is a testament Gord, to what I was thinking in my mind. I was thinking the only reason I'm making this call is to give my parents the opportunity to tell me 
we're ashamed of you. Don't ever come home. Don't ever call us again. I really thought, I remember really thinking like, and I thought like, I deserve it. You know, yeah. I'm nothing. I'm a failure. Uh, I've never done anything right. Nothing's ever been good. And this is just going to be closure. I'm going to, in, in a very small way, it almost felt like relief, you know? But of course, that's not what happened. Like my parents were, were like, what can we do? Like they were devastated they, and they didn't understand what was going on. And I couldn't really say anything to them either because you, you don't want to start talking about that stuff on a jail phone because obviously that's all very recorded. Yeah. So I kind of just told them, hey, it's everything's going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. Don't worry about this. You know, and they were like, how are we supposed to not worry about this? What are you talking about? Right. Um, but you only get your, your 10 minutes or whatever it is on the phone timer. So yeah, when I look back at that now, it's hilarious because that's just completely ridiculous for me to ever think that my parents would do that or feel that way. But that's very much the reality I was living in, you know? And, and so, um, yeah, man. So I, I, I went through the court system, Gord. I, I ended up being sentenced to 92 months in prison and because, so that's seven years, eight months. And because I'm from Canada, they considered me a flight risk. If you're not from the U.S., they consider you a flight risk because if you do manage to escape, there's nothing tying you to the community. And, and so they can't yeah. squeeze your family and they can't just wait around in your community for you to turn up. And, uh, you know, they really hate it when people don't tell. And they also really hate it. They get real twisted when people escape. So, um, so I was sent to the max. So I, I first went to Victorville, which is a maximum security United States penitentiary in, in Northern California. It's like the federal equivalent of Pelican Bay, which is a state prison down there. And yeah, man, it was quite a journey. I can tell you, I, uh, yeah, I, I'm very grateful that I, I was the, the physical size that I was, right? Being, being coming out of bobsleigh shape, that, uh, that's a big reason why I'm still alive. You know, I got, I got these migrating scars all over my hands and I'm not sure how much, I can't remember how much of this I've told you, you know, but it's a violent place. You fight a lot. And, um, so what do you walk around at today? Like how, I'm, what do you wait? I'm what do you ninety-five. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking to myself, like I, it, we haven't seen each other in six months or something, but I'm thinking to myself, like he's got to be two bills tops. So, so you were 45 more pounds and, and muscle, like you were, you were training. I was leaner than I am now. Yeah. Cause yeah, we, could, we were like bobsleigh training is speed power stuff. Right. So it's a lot of yeah. explosive heavy weight. You know, I had, I had a big old bobsleigh, but donk donk. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and so at that, at the, you know, you're still a young man in that kind of shape. And, uh, and you're just basically fighting your way through every day in a maximum security prison in Northern California. Yeah. Um, for six grams of purity testing of yeah. cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Kind due, of. due to some convenient amnesia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the way it is, Gord, it's more like this when you, when everything's very, very racially segregated. Though. So when you get to a new prison, your own people or your own car, as it's called, they're going to, they're going to be the ones to come and press you. Right. And uh, you know, if you turtle or if you tell you're out, you're in the cold. But if you, if you stand your ground, even if you get your dick kicked in, they're going to bring you right in, right? And, and then, of course, they're going to get their people on the outside to run your charges and make sure that you're not, make sure they're on a good beef, right? And a good beef would be like drugs or guns or, you know, 
yeah. something like that. But if, if you're in there for like child molestation or rape or some, some weird stuff, then uh, you're going to be an island, right? And you're going to have a real hard time. So it's not accurate to say that you're just fighting every day for every single thing, but, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's certainly a, a step up in violence and, and, you know, intense culture from, from the street. And that's one of the main reasons why I've taken such an interest in culture in, in the corporate world, because I can see the stabilizing effects it can have and how powerful it can be um, to, to bind people and, and execute common goals. And prison is an incredible example of that. So, so over the, over the years that I was away, so I got, I got home three weeks, I got released three weeks before I turned 30. Um, and, and over the years I was away, I was in, I was in 13 different prisons because in the federal system, they move you around a lot. And, and uh, I was eventually accepted for something called a treaty transfer, which is an agreement between Canada and, and the US where you can be repatriated to the country of your origin for the purposes of rehabilitation. So I got sent to Drumheller, right? And that was another very humbling thing because I've driven past that prison many times as a kid yeah. and, and wondered, holy shit, who's in there? Yeah. And the thought of going to jail for five minutes was just completely incomprehensible to me. And now here I am in my little leg chains and my little my hands cuffed to my belly chains, taking baby steps, wearing a bright orange jumpsuit, getting walked up into Drumheller prison. You know, it was and, a, and this at that point, this is like something you've probably been, if not lobbying for, you were happy to hear that, that you were granted this opportunity to come and finish your sentence in, in Canada, right? Like I'm, I'm assuming at that point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the reason the reason I tell this whole story, Gord, is because the, the first couple of weeks in jail were just massively existentially painful you know like i'd been working 80 hour weeks for years to build this empire and build this this reputation and this identity and it was everything to me i thought right and now like you know by no means was i a celebrity but because i had done some stuff with team canada and some student government stuff and, you know the, the media was pretty hard on me right and and they get things mixed up too like i, I volunteered on the on the addictions hotline and the suicide hotline at the support network and there were articles that you know, because I was in pharmacology, there were articles that I was a pharmacist who was selling drugs on the addictions hotline. They get stuff yeah. all twisted, right? But, but uh, you know, suffice it to say that my identity, my ego, my reputation was was destroyed, and they confiscated everything. You know, they call it proceeds of crime, even though they knew I didn't accept any money. Um, they don't care. Right. So my my empire, everything crumbled. Everything fell apart. Everything that I thought I was was gone right and it, it was just like the strangest pain it wasn't really a pain in your mind or your body like you know I, I was my mind and I was my identity and so it was just like I was pain it was a very strange I was nothing I was pain but I was nothing I didn't even know what to do I didn't even know how to put one foot in front of the other um, but after about two weeks uh, this this sense of peace washed over me Lord and at first I thought this is just the white noise of total overwhelm. Like my nerves are just shot. You know, the, I had, they weren't really giving me my insulin. So I was in a real tough place with my diabetes, really unhealthy. And of course the emotional and psychological stress combined with that physical deterioration was, I was just wasted, right? And so I thought I'm just unable to feel anything anymore. But that sense of peace, it really stuck with me and actually got stronger. And pretty soon I had to acknowledge that something was going on here. 
right? And I remember it's kind of funny for me to think back to this time because I'm, I remember like I'm wearing these dirty old prison scrubs with crusty cum stains on them, eating rotten potato stew and just like floating, floating around, like feeling like I was just so safe, feeling so present, so whole. Um, I just loved everything. I loved myself. I just felt amazing. And I didn't know what this was, but I didn't even want to ask questions because I knew I didn't want to be in this place without it. So I was kind of just trying to just be and not, not really try to dig into what the hell was going on here. But then after a few months, that feeling started to fade, Gordon. And when I felt it fading, I, I tried to grab onto it, but I didn't even know what I was grabbing onto. And it was kind of like sand, like the harder you squeeze it, the faster it moves out of your fingers, right? And it took me, it took me three, three and a half years in prison to figure out what that was. And, and what it was, Gord, is that I had built this identity in the image of what I thought I needed to be, to be successful and welcome and happy and, and enough, right? And I lived my life for and through this identity, this creation in my mind. And as you go through life, your identity gets bigger, right? You keep adding pieces. Every time you experience something, you add something. And, and, and every time you set a new standard, it becomes a standard that is now the minimum requirement, right? And so my identity had just become this enormous, heavy thing that I was sprinting to support. But because the things I was achieving, the things I was accomplishing were, were <clears throat> in the image of this identity I'd created in my mind, and they had nothing to do with who I really was. They meant nothing to me. And so I could only ever drain my batteries, and I wasn't recharging them at all. And, uh, and so that piece I felt Gord, was the complete evacuation of that ego, right? And even though I was kicking and screaming, having all that mass, all that weight peeled off of me um, was, the, was the greatest gift I have ever received in the universe. And I have two beautiful kids, you know? I, it was a feeling of, of peace and centeredness. Like I, I could just be me. I didn't even know that was a thing, Gord, you know? Yeah. I didn't have to be the smartest guy in the room anymore. I didn't have to be the most successful. You know, I didn't have to be something before I could feel okay. I was just so in the moment. Every, every experience, every moment was rich and beautiful and perfect. You know, this is the full experience of being a human being. This is the joy and the beauty available to all of us, right? All the time. And so and you're, you're having this kind of, uh, like, is this something that you've pieced together in the time or as this feeling was, was slipping away from you, you were kind of putting all these pieces together and, and you were, you know, able to, to use that as motivation, I guess, or for lack of a better term to, to continue on this path of, because you have to be very stoic, I'm assuming to be in prison for, for that length of time, you, you know, the, the people around you aren't typically people you can rely on. You're, you're doing this yourself, right. By the nature of prison. Yeah. So for the most part, you, uh, you definitely got to take responsibility for your own life in there. I mean, it, you, you, you get your group of boys, right? Like there, there definitely is community in there. Um, you, you find that, but, but uh, no, that I had no idea what the hell was going on with me. And that's why yeah. when this feeling started to fade. I didn't know why it was fading. I didn't know what it was. Um, and I tried to fight it. And, and the reason it faded, Gord, is because I didn't realize the gift I'd been given of having this ego evacuated and I felt naked, right? And so I started creating another one, right? This, this will not be my legacy. I'm gonna rise from these ashes 
and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be this guy. And I'm going to, now I'm envisioning who I'm going to be now. Yeah. And people are going to see me this way. Yeah. And, and now I'm walking around prison. Hey, check this out. You, you need to know this about me. This is what I'm all about. Right. And now I'm already creating separation between myself and the moment, because when things happen, I can't just experience them authentically. So I am, I need to do the math. I need to run the permutations. What would my identity say and do and think about this? And what image do I need to project about this thing now? Right. And now I'm already living for and through some construct that exists between my ears and nowhere else. And it's not real. So do you think that you subconsciously understood what was, what gave you that three month reprieve and, and now you're back building that ego up again so you can have it removed and feel that, or is this, is that what am I thinking way too deep into it? And you're just like, no, this is how you've coped with things and been successful. And this is, you know, this is what you're doing again. Yeah. Great question. You're giving me way too much credit for it. I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, I, I, uh, it took me, like I said, years in prison to, to really uh, digest all this and figure out what that feeling was, you know, and, you know, there, there's different ways of knowing you can read something and know it, and then you can just like understand something deeply and know it. And it was, I, I had no conceptual understanding of what that was that I felt, but I had this deep knowing that that was the truth that is who we are and no one could have ever convinced me otherwise um but i didn't understand what it was and i wanted to and so <clears throat> you know my my prison journey was pretty unique because most people they, they go into prison and they're like oh this is bullshit you know it's not my fault or i didn't do it or fucking snitch got me and you know and for me i was like yeah i did it you know yeah. i did it i fucked up and I committed to giving every single bit that I had left as a man, which didn't feel like very much to reconnect with my heart, to becoming the man that I felt like my, I was capable of being that my family deserved that our community deserved. And so my entire prison journey was one of, I was just constantly leaning into growth, development, understanding, release, freedom. <clears throat> you know, I joke all the time that, I had to go to prison to get free, right? Because in the outside world, I really wasn't free in my life. I wasn't free to do whatever I wanted. I was constrained to chase, right? Yeah. I, oh. I couldn't stop chasing for five seconds. There's just no way I could do that. And it's just amazing what the, what, like how driven by appearances, like this is kind of the ultimate story of how, how driven by, you know, material, not materialistic because not everything was about cars and, dirt bikes it was a lot of it was internally but you were just so driven but by something that led you astray right yeah yeah buddy so so when i came home gord i was so free you know yeah. i was i was just i felt so authentic so me and uh and i'll be honest i i was ashamed of my story still and um, I was in many ways starting over, right? Like, and now I was 29, about to turn 30 and I moved into my parents' basement, you know? Yeah. And uh, very much starting over after all those years. And so start meeting people and start making friends. And I, I was afraid people were going to ask me, so like, what have you been doing the last six, seven years? You know? <laughs> um, but eventually I started trusting people and I started to share my story a little bit. And I was just immediately humbled by the impact that it was able to have on people in the way that it, cause them to reflect on some of the things they've been struggling against some of the some of the things that have been holding them back in their life that they didn't see right and uh and i realized that my story really doesn't belong to me anymore it belongs to anyone who 
it will serve right and and that's where the journey began for this brand that i've created now you know like i, I was doing pharmacology at uva and my plan was to do medicine and a large part of that was because i wanted the prestige and the money but but there was a big part of that too you know i've always i've always felt called to use whatever gifts and skills i have to bring healing to support people in in becoming free becoming healed becoming fully expressed and so coming home from prison every time i'd meet someone it was like a, it was slapping me in the face it was so obvious that they were doing the same thing i was doing most people didn't take the train off the cliff like I did, yeah. but most people, to some degree, in this Western world, are living in 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 and through an identity that's not really authentic, right? And what I learned in prison, Gord, is that we are all these really beautifully unique souls. We are all very unique beings, and we all have a unique collection of skills and gifts and interests and passions and motivations and proclivities. And at the intersection of all these things is an opportunity for us to find the most meaningful and fulfilling existence available to us. And when we do that, we are able to manifest the most abundance in our life too. And so at the root of everything I do, whether it's my clinical hypnotherapy, my longer term purpose journeys, longer term client coaching programs, or all my corporate work, what I'm trying to do is help people and organizations identify pieces of their identity that are no longer serving them and with compassion gently release those things and as we do that we get more and more intimate with the truth of who you are and then i support people and organizations in in building a life in alignment with and an expression of that truth and you start to realize that all the money in the world all the success in the world means nothing if those were goals of something that doesn't exist right like if if you and I wrote down our authentic dream life and then we swapped and we both achieved, it would, it would be garbage. Like, you know, we, it would mean nothing to us. And that's what so many of us are doing. Right. And we do that because we think, well, this is the way for me to make the most money. This is the way for me to, you know, you know, get the most fame. And what I tell people all the time is that if you chase money or fame, you might get it. Very few people really do, but you might get it. But if you do, it's going to mean fuck all. But if you chase meaning and fulfillment in your life, if you lean into and invest in who you really are, you are absolutely going to find meaning and fulfillment. And because of that, you are going to find abundance. That's the way the universe works, right? When you move energy through your truth, through your gifts, what you create is so authentic, so real, so powerful that it, it manifests. People are drawn to it, right? And, and your path doing that is so joyful, so effortless so that you actually don't even care about how much money you're making now because your life is so awesome, but you're making the money too, right? So that's, you know, I, I tell that story to help people understand where I'm coming from with this brand and the perspective that I hold when I, when I work with people. And, and because of the experiences that I've had, I have a very easy time and I feel very blessed by this. I have a very easy time being compassionate, right? Like people can't, uh, people can't shock me. You know, people are right, yeah. sometimes and I'm like, hey, look, like, you know, I, I get it, right? I get that we can put ourselves in situations that create behaviors that are not who we are. And we are not our past. We are not our behavior in the past. Those things are parts of our journey that are opportunities for us to embrace and be redirected to something true, right? Well, and that's, that's interesting that you talk, you mentioned a couple of times about things that, that they're a construct of the Western civilization and stuff like that. And uh, I recently 
uh, listened to a podcast um, uh, and it talked about uh, a life of sobriety is, is essentially what the podcast was. And, and it talked about how, um, you know, particularly women are kind of targeted as, you know, uh, you know, but first wine, like we got to relax and get this. This is the tranquility in a bottle that you need at the end of a busy day. And I got thinking about, you know, if you, if we outlawed advertising today in two years, you know, we'd be like, remember advertising? Yeah, sure. But if you talked to a, you know, somebody with a, a postgraduate degree, educated, highly educated person, uh, 28 years old in 35 years and told them how we were influenced in our decision-making by all the ads that are out in our world, everywhere you look. And, and they, they would probably, you know, understand it because they looked at it in a history book, but they would be blown away at the things we did as a society based off of ads. And, and it kind of feeds into what you're, you're talking about with these visions of success and, and what you think your goals are. They're, they're all very, you know, commercially driven because that's kind of what we use to drive success. And, and it's easy to say, well, we shouldn't do that, but ultimately we all need money to live and that's just the world we live in, but it's always, and that's, if you could, you know, we, the last time you and I spoke, you, you, you used the word scarcity and abundance a bunch. And, and I really had to kind of, you know, take that away and understand it. And you've used it a little bit, uh, you know, as we talk today, do you want to just deep dive a little bit about the, the concepts of scarcity and abundance and, and how it's not a million dollars in the bank or zero dollars in the bank or a freezer full of moose meat or no, no harvest out of the garden? Because I think that's where I'm in my head. I was thinking scarcity and abundance, but I think it's kind of more inside of you scarcity and abundance than, than really having or not having. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, most people in our Western world are operating under this premise that we get successful and then we get happy. Right. And uh, so that would be a scarcity mindset. And that would be the idea that we're not enough right now. We don't have enough right now, but when we get enough, then we're going to be enough and we're going to feel good. And, 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 and that um, it's, the idea that we're like, sure, I'm scarce now, but you just wait until I get to this point I can see in the future. Right? And what we know very well, you know, we have now empirical evidence that supports us, you know, like, like uh, actually the book I recommended to you, Sean Aker and the, and the research he's doing at, uh, at Harvard, he has proven empirically that that doesn't work, right? It's a very seductive idea. And that's what the ads that want us to buy stuff are saying, hey, when you buy this, you're going to be happy. And when you work as a cog in the machine really hard for 30 years, you're going to be happy. But the way it really works is you, you choose happiness now. And then when you're happy, you're so able to express, you're so able to work and create and produce that you become successful, right? And creating the abundance. Right, exactly. Yeah, successful. Yeah, that's what I mean exactly right, Gordon. Yeah. Creating the abundance, right? And, you know, I laugh because when I was, before I went to prison, I would look at people who had nothing, but they were happy, right? And even like people in third world countries and 
kids are like smiling, laughing around, kicking around an old plastic bottle and just having the best time. So happy. And I look at them and I'm like, I feel sorry for you because you don't even know what happiness is. Like you're fooling yourself. If you think you're happy right now, this is like, it's kind of pathetic. And I feel sorry for you. Um, and I'm like, you know, you, you happiness comes when you do stuff and you get stuff. And you know, that's like, yeah, I'm happy because of this thing, right? You can't just create happiness. You can't just right. And what I learned hilariously was that I had it exactly backwards, right? If you think that you're going to get happy when you achieve something, then what you're doing is you're creating a rule in your mind and you're saying, I'm going to give myself access to the truth of who I am. I'm going to give myself access to the love and the joy and the peace inside my heart when I cross this finish line, right? And, you know, like, like Gord, if I, if I flicked you in the nose, that hurts because I've stimulated your neurons, right? But if I tell you, I don't like you and that hurts, you know, there's no real mechanism there except you've assigned meaning to that. And now right. you're internalizing it that way. So it's the same way with this, you know, we think that happiness isn't available to us until we blank, but actually when we take that mindset, that scarcity mindset, we give up tremendous power in our life and we put ourselves on a train that can never go anywhere. Right. And that's, that's, I, I've, I've, I've come to grips with that concept. I, I've heard it a different way. Um, Neil Pizricha did a, a blog, a, a thousand awesome things. And for a thousand days, he just blogged about something awesome. And he talks about that, how you we're taught you work hard, you get success and success will bring you the happiness. And, uh, you know, we've both seen a ton of people that have had success that aren't happy. You're, I mean, you, you lived it. Um, and he's, he says the same thing. If, if you're happy, you'll put in the work that it takes to be successful and you'll, you'll, you know, and kind of the way you communicate that is you create this rule that says you can't be happy until you have that success. And so you toil and toil and toil. And, and it's just an interesting um, it's an interesting point of view in that scarcity and abundance doesn't necessarily mean what we all have been trained to think that scarcity, which means a bereft of something and abundance, which means a lot of something. And, and it's not that it's, it's completely um, a point of view on a situation. Yeah. It, you know what I mean? And, and I, the, you, you said that to me, you mentioned Sean's book. I went and read it, the happiness advantage uh, highly recommend everybody reads it. Um, but, but until you start putting all these things together and understanding, and he, he does put the empirical data in front of you where he does these and across many cultures, he's in Hong Kong doing these, these uh, tests. He's in North America doing these tests. He's in Europe doing these tests. It doesn't matter where he goes. Everybody reacts the same. Everybody thinks they're going to react a certain way. And then they react the way he knows they're going to react. And then he can explain to them why. And everyone goes, okay, well, some people buy in, some people don't. And, and that's that, I guess. But it's just interesting after that little, you know, side journey that you sent me on. And then to sit here and talk to you again and hear you go through it. And it's like all these little ding, ding signposts are going by me. And I'm just like, man. It's there if you want to buy into it. If you want to read it, if you want to look into it, it's there. Um, yeah. Or not. It, that's fine too, right? Absolutely. Well, Gord, let me tell you really quickly, you know, one of the reasons I get into the work I'm doing is because this hypnotherapy work and this work in the unconscious mind is right on the bullseye of what we're talking about. So we have every second 11 million bits of information coming into our mind. So this is colors, shapes, textures, sounds, lights sensations from the body, emotions, memories, thoughts, but our conscious mind, which is where we exist, right? Where we interface with the world, where we hold our identity, it can only handle 200 out of 11 million. 
right? So it's a very, very small percentage. So what that means is that our unconscious mind has this very difficult job of deciding what 200 out of 11 million, what 0.000003% of all the available information gets through to our conscious mind. And it does this in two ways. What is important for survival and what's in alignment with our existing beliefs. So the survival piece, you know, like that, that gentle beep on the computer that's been going on for weeks, you can't hear that anymore because your unconscious mind has realized that's not important for survival. But if somebody kicked in your front door with a chainsaw, right, that would get your attention because right? yeah. that's important for survival. Now, the other piece, the beliefs, you know, like in my clinic, I see people all the time. There's this belief that you're not enough. So for instance, with me, I had this belief that I wasn't enough. And if you have a belief you're not enough, it doesn't matter how much you achieve, that information doesn't really get in, right? Because your unconscious mind is only letting information through that is in alignment with your existing beliefs. So I could achieve a thousand things. And then a thousand and one thing, I something happens where I could somehow internalize it as an underachievement. And my unconscious mind just goes, see, you're a complete failure, see? And so in hypnotherapy, what we're able to do is take you to the root of those beliefs, to the experiences where those beliefs form. And for some people, that's when they're one years old, you know, six months old, or three, four, seven, whatever it is. And we get to reframe that and help them see that that belief that their unconscious mind thought was going to keep them safe is not true. It's not serving them anymore. And we replace it and I implant a new belief. And now when they wake up, Gord, their unconscious beliefs have changed, which means their experience of the world has changed, right? So because we can only receive information into our conscious mind that's in alignment with our beliefs, if they now believe they're abundant and powerful and free, they're seeing evidence of that all the time in their life, right? And they're now seeing opportunities that they wouldn't have seen before. And they're feeling empowered to act on that. And so the beliefs that we hold and the way that we choose to see the world is everything. You know, there is no objective reality, right? Because all of us are operating on a version of reality that is a, that is a very, very small intentional selection of the truth. And this is why two people can go through exa the exact same experience and come away with very different, you know, meaning. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, no. And I, I'm, I understand that part about the, you know, that beliefs rooted in, in something people don't make it up. Um, but the truth in that, and, and the, you know, you say it's early, sometimes those, those beliefs are rooted and planted very early when you don't understand anything, right. You just, you feel a certain way about something and then you get older. And now if you can go in and, and search that out and understand the, the source of it and why you feel the way you do about it and how you can take that belief and shape the event to to look at it a different way and then the whole thing is is you know you, your your point of view changes because you're an adult and you're able to reason and all the different things that make us you know a human being our our, our development over the over the however many years there's been humans i'm not gonna get into a theological discussion here with you <laughs> not an hour and 15 minutes in anyways but yeah, yeah. The, the part I'm curious about, I guess, is we, we're pretty, a pretty clear understanding of what 23-year-old uh, Greg thought success was. Um, and through all the stuff that happened in, in between A and, and B uh, and forward to C and D, what, what is success for you now at this point? Is it, is it the, the belief that you're helping people? Is it raising your family in such a manner that you can give them the tools they need at an, at an age without having to have the experiences you had to have? Or is it just today is your goal is success and tomorrow will be the goal and that will be success. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, Gord, I think that, 
the highest calling for all of us as human beings is to serve through our gifts, you know, be, be in service of others with our gifts. I think that that's how we're designed. I think that the most meaningful and fulfilling life becomes available to us when we do that. And so success for me is continuing to lean into a more and more intimate understanding of who I am and what I'm here to contribute. And then moving energy through that in surrender, right? Surrender is a big piece too. You know, my, my uh, ego still creeps in on me too. Like, you know, I, I talk about all these, these powerful things I've learned, but by no means do I have it all figured out. Right. And, and uh, so success for me, it looks like just like that, you know, and, and, and that looks a little bit different every day, but really being in flow, being in surrender and having, having faith that, if I continue to serve, if I continue to give what I have uh, to our world, that things are going to happen exactly as they're supposed to. And, and in fact, that has been my experience, you know, and before, you know, like I've, I've been home now for six years and before I would have thought, okay, well, if I don't have this much money and this much, whatever in six years, and I'm not a success, but right now, I mean, I have, I have a beautiful wife and we have a, a beautiful marriage. I have two awesome little kids and my wife's pregnant she's due next month and i have i have multiple businesses that are just tremendously meaningful and rewarding for me we get a you know a nice house in a town we love and so if you would have told me six years ago that i would have manifested all this in this period of time i would have told you you were absolutely insane when i walked out of the gate man i didn't know if i'd remember how to drive you know like the thought of talking to a girl was like, I didn't, I didn't even know how, like how, how, what girl's going to want me now. Yeah. Right. That kind of stuff. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, success for me is, is in surrender and just continuing to lean into truth and having faith that when you do that, you're, you're taken care of, you're abundant, you know, and it's just true. It's that's the way it works. What did I tell you? What a great story. The, the way that, Greg weaves all the little stories of, of kind of his, his overall arc and his journey into his, his bigger story, his everything that led to what he's doing now, which is, which is the best definition of a second act. Uh, I can imagine it's, it's just incredible to think about all the things that he had going for him and it still wasn't enough. And he talks about it over and over again in, in the interview that it there it just felt like it was never enough and and he had to keep trying and doing all these other things and it, and that's where it led him it led him to federal prison in the United States it's pretty incredible to hear his takes on all these steps that took him he doesn't shirk any of the responsibility he understands why he was in the situation that he was in no doubt about it and it's just incredible to to hear the honesty the stark honesty of it uh, to talk for him to talk about it and and lay it out there you know I, I've shared this this some of this audio with people in my life and and people that know Greg and and they're just like yeah man that's Greg that's the honesty the the black and white cut and dried about his story that that we've come to expect for those of us that know him and the people that don't uh, incredible incredible human being so do want to mention um, he does have his own his own uh, business going going on here now. Um, you can find him on Instagram at b underscore fully underscore human. Uh, 
and uh, and on Facebook at uh, facebook.com uh, forward slash lifecraft coach. Uh, we'll have all the all the details for his contact info in the show notes. So if you're at all interested in reaching out to Greg and, and having a chat and understanding a little bit more about him and, and maybe there's an opportunity for him to help you, you can reach out and, and touch base with him. <clears throat> Another great show in the books. I've had this one um, had this one kind of on ice waiting for some things to flesh out for a little while. Uh, it's been really hard to hold this one because I know how great it is and, and how exciting uh, Greg's story ends to this point. You know, it's it's got some lows, but man, the, the highs are soaring and, and that's where he's at right now is on a high, you know, um, and, and it's just exciting to share that with people. Again, a like, rate, review, subscribe, sh- share it with your friends, tell your mama, do what you got to do to get the word out on the Second Act podcast. Uh, we've got some really great ones in the hopper here with the, with a few other exciting people that we've been meeting, and uh, we're we're just happy that uh, that people are taking the time out of their their busy weeks and days to to spend it with us. So remember, there's uh, there's no test at the end, and there's no wrong answers. So make the most out of every day. The Second Act podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening.